Well, once again, uh, it's the third Friday of the month, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern, sorry, Pacific time. Um, from 7.30 until 8 o'clock uh, this evening, uh, we have a live call-in with people. Uh, welcome to calling with questions uh, related to the uh, topic of the show uh, and or some unrelated uh, questions. Uh, we get all sorts from time to time. Um, so, once again, uh, very uh, pleased to join you here live uh, from the Kmart Studios in Garberville. Uh, it's March, it's uh, gone the equinox now, and the clocks have sprung forward, and we're definitely getting some sunny, warm heralds of the coming spring uh, that we're in now, I guess, but uh, the coming early summer. Um, so, once again, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce Dr. Raymond Pete onto the uh, live show, and... Um, like I said, from 7.30 till 8pm, we're inviting callers to ask questions related to this month's topic, which is the antiviral activity of medicinal plants and their constituents and how Dr. Pete interprets the antiviral activity because it's not always a straightforward antiviral activity but rather a host response that's uh, often the uh, remedy or the provo provoking factor which uh, stimulates the immune system into uh, defense. So the uh, number if you live in the area or even outside the area or from Iceland or Australia or wherever you're calling from, uh, number 707-923-3911. Now once again, 707-923-3911. And from 7.30 to 8 p.m. Uh, we'll be taking calls. Uh, so once again, Dr. Pete, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Mm -hmm. um, as always, I'd like to start the show off by asking you to uh, introduce yourself, give your, uh, a rundown of your professional and academic background so people can understand uh, where you're coming from. And later on, I'll give people uh, more information on how to find your website and your articles. Um, after undergraduate study in humanities uh, and a, a master's degree uh, also in generally humanities uh, thesis on William Blake. I, I later, about 10 years later, went to graduate school in uh, biology, interested in uh, brain physiology, but ended up uh, working on reproductive physiology because the, the brain biology people uh, seemed uh, too, too indoctrinated with uh, uh, membrane theory and other stylish things at the time. Uh, so I worked on reproductive physiology, and that got me interested in uh, how the hormones affect consciousness, among other, other things, uh, and uh, uh, how nutrition and hormones interact with other environmental factors uh, to uh, affect our immunity and development, consciousness, and so on. Okay. All right. Well, I think to um, open up... Um uh, this month's topic, um, I know some of the subject matter we may have touched on in the past. I know certainly some compounds uh, will come up um, repeatedly in terms of their uh, anti-inflammatory and stress-reducing uh, potential, as well as antioxidant potential and a number of other things that uh, work together for the good of the host. Um, we've been intimately um, associated with viruses uh, ever since we walked the face of the earth and then um, I've, I've heard various stories of um, viral DNA uh, being part of our DNA 
I think up to 8%. Uh, was that, is that, am I right in thinking 8% was uh, kind of often quoted proportion? Uh, um, a retroviral uh, DNA uh, uh, seems to be around that. Okay. All right. So, firstly, <clears throat> um, given given how you understand viruses and um, any potential benefit uh, that they may confer, although most people consider viral illness not at all beneficial, but a detriment uh, to their health and to the health of others. Uh, obviously, the World Health Organization um, has been campaigning a long time uh, for things from polio eradication to the kind of Ebola outbreaks that have been. Uh, grabbing the mainstream news, but how how are we to interpret the viral inclusion in our DNA and our evolution with them if we're to understand their role and our approach to dealing with the damaging effects of coexisting with viruses, especially where they cause high mortality and morbidity? Uh, well, bacteria have have their own independent existence. They They can generally live without us. Uh, viruses uh, depend on a higher organism to exist. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I asked a few people what they thought the origin of viruses was, and uh, no one wanted to suggest anything at all. Uh, the the uh, nature of the immune system at that time 1970, uh, people were still very puzzled about how, how we could have such a uh, an immense uh, potential immunity to every sort of conceivable antigen. Uh, at that time, they were still thinking in terms of uh, being born, being created with every antibody, every gene uh, specifying an antibody in someone. I worked out the, the numbers and saw that it would take <laughs> something the size of a tennis ball for a nucleus of every cell if it was to contain uh, genes for every antibody that we produce. Uh -huh. And uh, so people had to start thinking about innovation, uh, the inventive process happening for the immune system uh, and uh, the uh, origin of viruses uh, seems to uh, be uh, related uh, to that process of uh, cell invention, innovation, mm -hmm. and uh, interaction. Uh, pe people have um, said that viral diseases uh, became a human problem uh, at the same time that we uh, shifted to an agricultural economy, yeah. suggesting that diet uh -huh. could be part of it. And historically, wars, famines, and deforestation, all sorts of natural disasters, have uh, led to um, epidemics. Uh, and uh, stress is, um, one theory is that stress causes mutations in the virus, causing a benign virus to uh, mutate and become dangerous. Mm -hmm. But whatever the mechanism is, it's known that viruses appear and circulate during uh, social uh, stresses. And, Go on. Yeah. Uh, when, when you look at an individual mm -hmm. under stress, uh, each uh, uh, 
type of uh, tissue or organ sends out messages when it's under stress, little uh, micro vesicles, uh, microsomes of various names for them that are, are uh, emitted as a very fine submicroscopic particle which contains nucleic acids, RNA, DNA, proteins, hormones, a great variety of substances that travel to other cells in the body and can be assimilated, uh, transmitting differentiated uh, uh, nucleic acid patterns to other cells that are under stress, helping them adapt. Like messengers, or uh, Yeah. Uh, and uh, when the individual is under stress, this is a natural. Everyone does this constantly. Uh, and the, the sicker you are, the, the more of these microvesicles you have circulating around. And that seems to be why um, old serum transmits aging, young serum uh, uh, transfusions uh, communicate a, a youthful physiology. Uh, so part of the, the uh, stress of aging is that we're sending uh, more and more of these distress messages around. And uh, since viruses uh, never could uh, develop on their own, uh, it, it's probable that they're an emission uh, from a stressed population uh, escaping from this uh, therapeutic, corrective, adaptive process that happens always constantly within our body as part of our normal development. Uh, some of that escapes. And uh, getting into an organism which is in a different state of stress, uh, that can become uh, a virus that, uh, or a, a microvesicle that the recipient organism hasn't uh, learned how to uh, deal with. Huh. Interesting. I, I want to go back to something you uh, touched on that triggered a, a memory in me about uh, an article that I read about um, the epidemiology of viruses as best we know it or we can understand it now. But that um, they wanted to link the fact that viral diseases became a lot more prevalent during organization when people and uh, communities started living in a, and because you mentioned the word agrarian when they started getting together and growing crops in one location rather than being nomadic and population started to increase locally in a concentration that up until that point never really allowed viruses an effective means of spread but once we started becoming community oriented and living in towns and bigger towns and cities etc it made it very easy for viruses to spread from one person to another it was the grains that made that kind of civilization <laughs> easy to develop and the grains are bad for you right uh, yeah uh, two things in particular they're very high in phosphate uh -huh. and uh, uh, low in, in calcium um, the, the um, that, that in itself, uh, I, I think, is uh, enough to uh, damage your immunity. Uh -huh. So you think so just that um, just that practice of growing wheat in large quantities to feed the masses uh, affected the, the nutrition, not the nutritional status of the people, enough to allow something uh, like that negative effect of decreasing calcium and increasing phosphate. You, you, 
to, to actually become a, an issue or develop into a problem that uh, would be uh, affecting a person's health and or allow um, the host to become susceptible. And uh, a high iron content in the diet is another thing that, right. that damages <clears throat> immunity because uh, most microorganisms uh, depend on iron as one of their right. host uh, because you've always, you've always mentioned iron as being a very damaging um, element in terms of its ability to oxidize things and rapidly uh, cause that kind of damage, and that high iron is always associated with disease. Um, yeah, and that has been one of my interests in looking at the, the role of milk in uh, public health okay. uh, because it's very low in iron. Right, high and, calcium. Yeah, and... Uh, Babies are immune to many diseases, such as malaria and viral diseases, while they're being breastfed. And, and so they're getting a high calcium intake and a low, a low iron intake. Wow. So you do, I, don't, I don't mean to uh, throw it out there to question you per se, but um, that's a fact, is it, that babies that are being breastfed have a statistically lower proportion of disease than... Um, children that have been weaned and have started to eat food and... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, some of, of the, like, respiratory infections are mm -hmm. said to be uh, only about 20% as frequent in breastfed babies and malaria and such in, in the, the, the uh, zones where it's endemic, uh, babies don't get it until uh, right after they uh, stop being breastfed for years older, so... Okay, uh, let's hold it there for a second. Um, you're listening to Irish Gerb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM. Um, from 7.30 to 8 o'clock, uh, we'll be taking callers. Uh, you can call in the number here, 707-923-3911. I just wanted to uh, make a mention as well during this show, uh, as well as you probably have heard uh, prior in this week and will be hearing over the weekend and through next week, that it's KMUD's Pledge Drive. And right now... Well, we're at 30, 34,170 out of a hoped-for 70,000. So we are essentially, uh, you know, virtually halfway uh, between uh, 70,000 uh, in raising the funds necessary to keep this show and all the others on the air. I um, just want to remind people time and time again that we have a free speech radio s station here in this part of Humboldt County in Northern California, and there are not that many freely independent radio stations uh, broadcasting pretty much uh, what's local and pretty much what is the uh, current pulse of things, whether it's politically or economically, etc. Um, so it's a very valuable resource, and uh, I know this show wouldn't exist without KMUD, so I'm very grateful for KMUD to allow this and all the other programs to exist, and it's free speech in its purest form. So I really appreciate people uh, calling in and pledging whatever amount they can afford, uh, for a uh, yearly membership or lifetime membership, if you can afford that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, please donate, because it's what keeps the show going. Um, so, Dr. Pete, uh, to carry on the uh, kind of discourse here about your um, the understanding, the, your reasoning behind disease born of a virus and your understanding of our ability to interact or live uh, in the presence of a virus and or some viruses that it's not in the interest of the virus to kill the host because they can only replicate inside a living organism. And you've mentioned in the past that 
viruses or uh, in fact the genetic information they contain is passed down uh, from generation to generation through and it can be passed down through the DNA and that actually it's a you've said it's kind of a messenger system in some way but can you explain that in, in terms of how that could possibly benefit uh, the organism because I know I want to talk a little bit about viral disease and I would imagine anybody with cold sores or you know they contract measles or they've got warts would ever imagine that this could be a beneficial thing but um, in terms of what viruses do and, and, and their, inf their information that they carry and how they plug this into our DNA to affect a change um, given that we've coexisted with viruses ever since we were walking the face of the earth um, how do you how do you see viruses in the scheme of things? You know when they're not actually just straight out killing people with Ebola or um, you know other deadly viral diseases. How, how do you imagine that they've existed for so long and they how how they could be beneficial? In the big historical epidemics, there have always been some people who never caught the disease right. were, were simply naturally <clears> immune. <throat> Uh, I, I think that's the way everyone is when they aren't uh, uh, <laughs> subjugated and fed a, a, a grain diet. Right. Okay. I, I think the, uh, the, the social invention of disease, especially viral disease, is a definite historical thing that you can see the cellular meaning in a very direct way. Uh, that the, uh, uh, there hasn't been uh, much written about the concept of reductive stress, but it simply means that when your cells are being uh, burdened or overstimulated uh, more than their oxidative metabolism can deal with, uh, the, they lose their oxidative, pro-oxidative balance and go into the reductive stress. And that's where iron, for example, becomes uh, toxic because iron that is harmlessly stored in the oxidizing cell suddenly uh, becomes a source of free radical destruction uh, when the cell goes over into the overstimulated reductive state. Uh, and I think that's the central fact of the failure of the immune system is the something interfering with the oxidative, pro-oxidative balance of the nervous system. And uh, a calcium deficiency or phosphate excess is another thing uh, that contributes to that reductive stress. Uh, the parathyroid hormone shifts the cells in that direction. Uh, and so when you're eating uh, too much uh, grain phosphate, uh, you increase your parathyroid hormone, that shifts your balance over in the direction of too much reduction, activating uh, cellular weakness and uh, oxidative destruction. You have mentioned uh, fairly regularly about cell stability and how the cell's inherent stability uh, is essential in terms of maintaining good health and that it's the reductive processes that damage um, cellular integrity and stability and that these things energetically lead to a weakness with 
um, results of you know the cell's inability to maintain uh, order, if you like, because everything everything in this universe is about energy and order, and entropy is the kind of opposite end of that. It's the disease, decay, chaos, state of you know breakdown. Whereas in a perfect in a perfect body, everything that we have has really been given to produce order and. Uh, you know, replication and cell turnover and managing cells and everything that we hear about disease, death and cancer, etc., especially cancer, is a disorganized inability um, to stabilize the cell and things are out of control. So from an energetic point of view, uh, your, 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 your mind set, sets upon that type of energetic um, basis for good health and it looks at viruses in exactly the same kind of light perhaps and as many other things uh, yeah <clears throat> for the cell energy system uh, cancer uh, and uh, bacterial and viral infections uh, and various types of inflammation are all the same process mm -hmm. uh, it shifts from the production of carbon dioxide which is an anti-entropic factor mm -hmm. uh, the carbon dioxide uh, spontaneously binds to all of the amino groups in proteins and uh, shifts the the acidic balance and so the mineral retaining balance of the cell stabilizing it in the uh, uh, potassium retaining uh, calcium and, and sodium uh, resisting uh, condition of the cell the stable uh, conformation of the cell proteins and when something interferes with your ability to produce that stabilizing carbon dioxide. Instead, we produce lactic acid, right. uh, which adds exactly the opposite. It shifts us over into the uh, 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 unstable state. Uh, increased pH ionization that attracts calcium and sodium and, and can't take up enough uh, magnesium and potassium. Okay, good. Now you're listening to Ask Europe, Dr. K. Medigal, 91.1 FM from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock. Uh, callers are invited to call in with questions they'd like to post to Dr. P, uh, either about this month's subject of uh, antivirals and viruses, their existence, etc., etc., uh, or unrelated subjects. The number here is the number 707-923-3911. Okay, so getting on to... Um, Obviously, we need, I say obviously, but I think it's in most human interests not to be diseased, especially in the light of this month's subject of viruses. It's definitely beneficial not to get smallpox or not to get Ebola or et cetera, et cetera. They're obviously, it's not a beneficial state to be diseased like that. And so uh, that begs the question, apart from smallpox, which apparently is the only known successful eradication even though they have stocks of it in russia uh and i think america have stocks of smallpox and they almost uh, got them to destroy those stocks but anyway i think it's the only eradication program that has been quote unquote successful um in terms of actually dealing uh with viruses uh how and i guess this wants to i want to bring up another uh, point about technology that in the last four or five years has made some pretty big leaps, maybe uh, perhaps with not enough oversight, because I know the uh, creation of human embryos that can resist HIV is a fairly controversial subject in China, where they 
uh, disclosed, or at least people found out, they've been using CRISPR technology to edit genes, and that these gene sequences never before so easily <laughs> tampered with, uh, clipped, etc., etc., and reinserted back into the embryo to do what they wanted has become available now. And I, I, I know that you've said that they just haven't had enough time to refine this and what they're doing at this point in time is actually probably going to be a Pandora's box. But uh, what do you think about the whole process? As I know you're not mechanistic, so that's why I'm asking you, but um, in terms of editing genes and inserting or reinserting or, um, you know, editing, what, what, what do you think, how do you think, how do you look at this technology in terms of, can, do you think it's going to become helpful, or do we think it's still going to be plagued by the same takeover? I think it's exactly the uh, the same ideology that was imposed early in the 20th century as neo-Darwinism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it basically uh, removed some of Darwin's most important ideas and called it neo-Darwinism, but uh, Darwin uh, wouldn't wouldn't have subscribed to neo-Darwinism. Uh, it, it's a, a purely mechanical uh, a theory of existence in which random variations in the genetic material is the essential idea. It, it's randomness from the bottom up. Uh, random changes uh, lead to uh, organization. Uh, eventually, yeah, by uh, weeding out uh, ones that don't work. Supposedly, the random uh, changes led to something that worked, and, and then those, by random diffusion within a cell, uh, do various things. It, it, everything is explained in terms of random changes. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Ever since uh, Lamarck and Darwin, uh, the practical uh, people working with organisms have known that that doesn't work. It's only the academic uh, ideologues who have pushed that uh, abstract view of genetics. Uh, James A. Shapiro it is, has, has worked as a bacterial geneticist. Uh, he, he has written uh, books uh, describing bacteria as perfect genetic engineers. Uh, they're perfectly des designing and engineering uh, their genetic system. <clears throat> but uh, his uh, view of all organisms or of nature is that life is cognitive all the way down, top to bottom. Uh, in, instead of randomness, it's cognition. Right. Uh, cognition on the cellular level, brain level, and so on. Okay, so what about uh, <clears throat> bacteriophages now? Um, as a uh, kind of a lucid point here to manipulate um, viruses. Uh, what was the word bacterial? What? Bacteriophage. The, oh, oh, yeah, oh, The phage uh, technology. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that for the intestine uh, or wounds that are infected with bacteria. Uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Asia have, um, over the last 70 or 80 years, have developed uh, a great collection of uh, these viruses that uh, specialize in destroying li living on bacteria. And uh, they're harmless to people, but they will eliminate uh, bacteria that have 
got out of control in our intestines or in infected wounds. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, okay, so I've got some specific questions about some specific uh, viruses, and just because uh, I know that you've always got an alternative uh, approach to treating uh, conditions, and uh, some of these conditions, obviously, I've um, I've, I've asked you about in the past here with people uh, directly, even. Um, and I've seen myself, you know, uh, the outcome of this. Um, I wanted to, I guess, first start uh, with something that is, I think they call it 30 or 35% of the population have uh, either come into contact with it or are currently uh, suffering with it. And this is um, human papillomavirus, so both in males and females. And in males, the gen genital warts, and in females, the uh, dysplasia uh, that can be seen by gynecologists, etc., on females, that can eventually lead to cervical cancer. Um, certainly, seems to be a, a pretty, a pretty alarming uh, state where there's so many of the population are actually suffering. And I know, whilst uh, things like genital warts seem to be quote unquote self-limiting uh, in terms of it not just progressing from bad to worse uh, but they eventually clear up and it, potentially you don't see any further complications of it there is there is and has been associated with them um, things like penile cancer and so that this is one example of a virus here that's directly uh, interfering with a host's uh, DNA and energy and flow of electrons in the correct ways to bring about this cellular degradation to a point where uh, the body's lost control of the organization there within the organism and so either uh, either cancers uh, are rising uh, as a result of this and this is what they call the oncogenic the oncogene or the oncogenic effect where this virus has actually been shown to cause uh, a future cancer what do, what do you think about um, both of those uh, things, the human papilloma um, and genital warts and, and uh, the kind of things they engender? Uh, the cervical dysplasia that is uh, one of its effects uh, can, can, if it persists, uh, can become carcinoma in C2 right. or, or cervical cancer mm -hmm. and so on. But all of the women that I've known who had cervical dysplasia or carcinoma in C2 of, of the cervix, uh, cleared it up in just a few weeks by improving their diet and applying uh, vitamin A, vitamin E, progesterone, uh, taking supplements of folic acid uh, and uh, thyroid. Hey, 100% of them. Can I just hold you there? I, I know uh, I personally have... Um uh, worked with this and helped you know, just advising other people or you know um, just being there in terms of a source of information for exactly what you've just mentioned here so vitamin A you said and progesterone uh, and I know that this would be something that um, would be best used topically in terms of a pessary kind of treatment right how, how would how do you see that um, or those substances and I guess we'll call it, for the sake of the topic of this month, antiviral. How, how would you see their antiviral activity affecting the change in the tissue that, uh, after X amount of time, comes back as being healthy tissue again and not dysplastic? Um, uh, the irritation, uh, among other things, 
any irritation increases uh, the reductive balance of the cell and the activation of uh, estrogen production, and estrogen tends to lock it into that uh, reductive and dysplastic condition. Uh-huh. And uh, these various things in, in different ways, vitamin A opposes the uh, structural changes on uh, epithelial cells uh, has, has an anti-estrogen differentiating effect. Uh, progesterone knocks out the, uh, the estrogen and it, its products. Uh, uh, all of the uh, metabolic changes shift the cell uh, away from estrogen and inflammation towards the uh, uh, oxidative energy-producing condition. The, the, uh, the mainstream mainstream medicine would hold the uh, hold the view that colposcopy, which is a term they've given to this procedure, where they take a basically a cone, uh, they bore a cone of tissue uh, out of the cervix in the area where they identify this dysplasia, this uh, dis, disorganized cell, and that goes against all the tenets of anything that you've ever. Uh, held true that cancers you just don't start cutting into tissue uh, around a cancer because not just from a, a potential of not getting it all but having any kind of spread but because uh, the alarm signal that has been well documented or the bystander effect uh, when cells are in alarmed and in trouble as would happen during something like a you know <laughs> an excision uh, that's the very trigger for something to become uh, in a state of uh, alarm. If you're extremely healthy, you you can heal. You, you can stand to have a, a bit of tissue cut away and heal it up with a healthy, almost not visible scar. But to the extent that you're uh, not fully in the oxidative condition, uh, any wound is going to leave its trace as a more or less defective healed area of bad scar tissue uh, has a lower oxygen tension, puts the cells under stress, tends to attract repair cells, but to damage the repair cells because the the tissue is defective. Uh, So it becomes a a center for uh, cancer regrowth. Uh, Any destruction of the tissue, if you're not fully healthy, which you wouldn't be if if you were uh, having the cancer in the first place. Uh, But if you can recover your good oxidative health, uh, then you can uh, probably stand having a bit of tissue cut out. Okay. I just want to remind people, uh, ask your herb doctor, KMD Garbable 91.1 FM, from now until 8 o'clock, the number to call is 707-707. Nine two three three nine one one, and we do have our first caller uh, on air waiting. And uh, caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? And what's your question? Hi, I'm from Arizona. Thanks for the show, Andrew and Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, your article on immunodeficiency mentions the autoantibodies several times, and glutamate is an excitatory amino acid. And glutamate decarboxylase is the enzyme that turns glutamate into GABA, which is associated with relaxation somehow. And my question is about how some people have autoantibodies to this enzyme, and these are associated with type 1 diabetes and stiff man syndrome. And I was wondering if you had any comments on the system, and how does gamma hydroxybutyrate and or 
passion fruit juice influence the autoantibodies and GABA? I, I think the energy system uh, should be able to use the antibodies to uh, clean out the, the defective enzymes uh, and uh, not continue uh, to uh, be produced. Uh, the uh, I, th- I think uh, supporting the GABA system with magnesium, glucose, carbon dioxide, anti-inflammatory things, uh, the uh, pro-GABA steroids uh, derived from progesterone in particular, uh, and the anti-immune uh, steroid DHEA, uh, which helps to uh, redirect uh, the antibody production. Uh, uh, estrogen tends to make us overproduce uh, antibodies uh, but not be able to uh, guide the correction process. Uh, so things that shift the whole physiology towards oxidation and, and uh, the, the relaxed, high, highly energized state of the cell, I think that's the, the route out of all of those autoimmune uh, diseases. Okay, thank you. And do you have any comments on people who have adverse childhood experiences and physical injuries? Like I had a head injury like 20 years ago, and anything related? That... Um, those, those same things, the things that increase stability and energy production and carbon dioxide production, all of those are constantly uh, causing cells to be born and to differentiate in the right direction. Okay. Uh, last question. Is, is there any use to GABA supplementation? Like, there are a lot of products or powders out there that have this um, in it. It, it. Normally, it doesn't get into the brain because of the so-called blood-brain barrier, but when the brain is very injured, it is taken up because uh, basically the brain needs it. But... Uh, Ordinarily, I think it's enough just to uh, eat a, a pro-oxidative diet, avoid the excess of phosphate, uh, lactic acid, iron, and so on. Okay. Well, All right. uh, thank you, and have a good day. Thank you for your call. I think we have uh, one or two other callers uh, waiting here, so let's go to our next caller. Caller, where are you from, and what's your question? I'm um, from New York, um, and I... Hello? Yeah, hi. I got some kind of feedback. I'm not sure if the engineer uh, can do anything or if it's anything your end. No, it's nothing to do with me, but um, okay. I have two questions. Dr. Pete, we've spoken before. Um, first question relates to dry CO2. The notion of um, doing that in a bath or doing it in a big bag, you know, may not be ideal. So one other approach, and what I've tried, just want to get your feedback on it, is to get four different bags, put them, like, around your both legs up to the knee, um, on both arms, sort of beyond the elbow, and, you know, fill them up with the CO2. And actually, you could do it with a shower cap, too, on your head without, you know, impairing your breathing. And if you go to sleep at night, I found that, like, four or five hours later, I'll wake up, and I'm, I'm over 50, so, um, you know, the hormones are moving in the wrong direction. I'll find that the... There's a lot of moisture. I mean, literally, in some cases, a lot of wetness um, in those bags after four hours. If you do it for like an hour, you don't get anywhere near that amount. It can wake you up. So I'm just wondering, 
Is that a good approach? What, what is going on there? And does that make you dehydrated? Should you be drinking water? Because clearly you're getting rid of bad water and retaining good water. But I just wanted to get a little more of a, a physiological explanation of what's going on and, and how it's good and how long it lasts. Um, the mechanism is that the carbon dioxide relaxes your skin blood vessels so your skin gets pink and warm and uh, then the plastic bag uh, uh, prevents uh, the uh, water from leaving uh, so it, it's uh, just natural uh, sweat vaporization uh, but it's an inconvenience but it doesn't hurt anything but is it a good thing? In other words, is it literally removing bad, you know, poorly structured water from the cell? Well, uh, people who have had terrible edema uh, keeping their legs or lower body uh, in a bag uh, very, very efficiently get rid of the edema. So it, it, uh, uh, much of the water is going to leave through your kidneys and your lungs being breathed out but also some of it is, is leaving through your warm skin. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's a, a good thing to do um, in place of the other? I mean, have you heard of that, or is what are the downsides of what I just described? Uh, no, than, no, no problem, except you might get mold. <laughs> might get what? Uh, skin fungus, if you stay too humid too long, uh, it might favor the growth of, of microorganisms on your skin. In a matter of hours? I would think days, yes, but in a matter of like two uh, no, hours versus no, no. one hour? It, it, it probably isn't, isn't a problem, but uh, uh, like just wearing uh, sweaty shoes for several hours can uh, uh, favor overgrowth of fungus. Yeah. Okay, second question relates to thyroid. Um, you discussed the adrenal gland and how it can rejuvenate itself and other glands, and so... It seems to me that the adrenal gland provides a multitude of different hormones in production, whereas the thyroid only produces, you know, I guess T1 through T4, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a few others, but nowhere near the breadth of, of the adrenal gland. And so I'm wondering if the adrenal gland does all the things that it does and it's able to regenerate itself, why wouldn't the same thing apply to the thyroid gland? In other words, it seems that in, I've heard in the past that perhaps it can be useful for older people, even if they haven't had deficient thyroids, to continue to take thyroid medicine, you know, forever. And I guess I'm thinking, why is that? Because you certainly wouldn't apply that to the adrenal glands. Is it possible for the thyroid to <clears throat> rejuvenate itself and actually function normally such that you could literally not have to take any thyroid medicine after some period of time, or you could take two or three other items that ultimately would provide an adequate proxy. Uh, the reason people benefit from taking a thyroid supplement isn't that their gland is weak. It's that their whole body is working to interfere with the function. Uh, there, there can be enough uh, thyroxine circulating in the body of a hypothyroid person uh, for, for a dozen people. Uh, but if, if you're body is not activating it properly, not not able to mobilize the mitochondrial respiration, uh, then that thyroxine uh, is counterproductive in, in some cases. It interferes with 
with the formation of, of and, and effect of T3. If someone wasn't happy taking that for a long period of time, they had an adequately or maybe just a minor suboptimal functioning thyroid, are there two or three things that you would say, I, I've, you know, that you would say that are really important if you're not going to take thyroid uh, yeah. medicine to proxy for that? When you have eliminated most of the polyunsaturated fats in your tissues, then mm -hmm. your tissues are extremely sensitive to thyroid hormone, and so your gland doesn't have to work very hard to keep you in a high metabolic condition. So that's the number one thing. Okay, so what you're saying is the thyroid will do regenerate itself the same way an adrenal gland will, the same way any gland will, but that's actually not the point. Uh, the yeah. point is it's the body and your consumption of PUFA, the transport, the absorption in the cell, et cetera. It's, it's the entire train ride to the cell that ultimately gets um, interfered with, not uh, the gland production. Is uh, that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, and by the time a person is, is 45, uh, the body is really soaked in polyunsaturated fats. Uh, they, they talk about the N-minus-3 uh, fatty acids uh, as being uh, predominant in the brain, but that's only an old brain. A healthy young five-year-old brain is highly saturated in comparison to a middle-aged brain. Right. It's funny you mentioned just another point on this on the omega-3s because Mary Enig wrote an article which, and I, I can't remember whether you support her review or not, but she actually said that the, the problem, you, you need some and you need them to be in equal proportion, the threes, you know, one-to-one -one ratio between threes and sixes. Um, but she doesn't say that you don't need them. And there just seems to be, even from people that are alternative medicine people who are relatively credible and have no, you know, vested interest, you know, to deceive anybody, it seems there's a lot of sources that, that seem to believe that there's some benefit. So I don't know whether... The goal is to get to zero, or because you've also mentioned that the ratio of saturated to unsaturated may actually be more important than whether or not you 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 um, accumulate PUFA. So I'm just trying to get a little bit of perspective on that because context, I guess, is everything, right? Um, uh, yeah. If, if you look at a newborn brain, uh, people are now saying that all newborns are deficient in PUFA, but. Uh, when you look at the brain function, uh, the reason little kids can learn so spectacularly quickly is that their brains aren't overloaded with PUFA. The metab metabolic rate is extremely high in the absence of PUFA. That was one of the thing, things that uh, Burr in 1932 or three discovered was his animals that were made deficient in the so-called essential fatty acids he put them under a, a bell jar and found that they were consuming oxygen almost twice as fast as the normal rats. Uh, and people are the same. Uh, we have a terrifically high metabolic rate uh, uh, when we're two or three or four years old and it's gradually suppressed as we accumulate fish oil and vegetable oil. Thank you for that right. caller. I appreciate your, uh, appreciate your call. we got a caller waiting, so let's move on to the next Thank caller. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Caller, where are you from and what's your question? 
Hi, I'm calling from New York, and thank you wow. for this great show. Another New York. Uh, I had a, a question sort of similar to the previous caller um, about fully hydrogenated oils. Um, I, I think, Dr. Pete, I think you've um, recommended fully hydrogenated oils um, to improve me metabolic rate. Um, my question is, um, do you think that the, the catalysts that they use uh, to hydrogenate the oils and, and the little, maybe the, the particles that flake off of the, the uh, screen that they use for hydrogenating them, do you think that's a, that's a serious problem or, um, it, or is it, it, it... It's definitely worrisome, and I, I think we uh, should look for a, a, a much better way to uh, get saturated fats, uh, but... Uh, uh, it, the experiments like like the Russians who uh, f used fully hydrogenated peanut oil and found that old mitochondria were restored to the youthful uh, functions just with that highly saturated peanut oil. Uh, the results are so good that, uh, yeah. uh, that despite the, the possible danger of, of traces of, of the catalysts, Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, do you think that the more saturated the fat is, then the the more maybe the more antiviral and antibacterial it could be? Because I know the coconut oil is, but um, I, yeah, I think it is the saturated fatty acids that are most antibacterial and and probably help help with the viral resistance. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much. I yeah, appreciate so, it. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Okay. In case there's anybody else out there wanting to get a question in uh, before eight o'clock, the number here is seven zero seven nine two three three nine one one. This is Ask Your Herb Doctor, KMUD Galveston ninety one point one FM. And I just want to mention again that uh, we are running our pledge drive here, folks. So uh, for all of those people that are listening, uh, whether they've called in or not, uh, we'd really appreciate your financial support. Uh, however however much you'd like to give. And uh, if you just call the same number, uh, the 707-923-3911 number would work to get your pledge to the people waiting to receive them. And uh, we do appreciate your support is what keeps the radio station alive. Okay, so uh, Dr. Pete, a uh, couple of couple of interesting calls there. I wanted to uh, carry on the topic here uh, with antivirals, looking at uh, some specific components uh, in plants and namely some medicinal plants that have been uh, pulled out and have been used as trials. Um, I know, I know trials, but for trials' sake, are sometimes a little bit uh, poorly designed or sometimes the results are skewed uh, unfairly in one or the other direction. Uh, but obviously, things like um, the flavonoids and I want to mention uh, my other question that I have for you, if we get time for it, um, naringen and, and naringenin. But let's start with um, the flavonoids as a chemical group, um, especially from green tea. Um, now, we've all heard about the benefits of green tea, uh, not just from the Chinese, but from uh, many other people around the world who's, who seem to believe and some research is showing that there's some be definite uh, clinical benefit from consuming green tea daily, um, as I'm sure you will say that coffee's consumption is also very useful. Um, but the antioxidants, um, epicatechin and epicatechin gallate, 
Um, they're said to be uh, reducing glutamate excitotoxicity. Now, you've always talked about excitotoxicity in general as being a very negative, energy-reducing kind of state, of wasteful state of the cell. Yeah, it puts you in the reductive stress condition. Right. So if, um, if both of these flavonoid compounds then reduce this excitotoxicity, then that's got to be a good thing in terms of stabilizing things and calming the cell down and reducing inflammation, right? Um, yeah, the, although they're called antioxidants, <laughs> okay, like, like vitamin C is called an antioxidant, yeah. but when it's in the cell, <laughs> and when, when those flavonoids are in the cell, they function as pro-oxidants. They shift the cell into the healthy, oxidized condition. Right. Well, that's a good thing, obviously. Uh, so how about... Um, okay, so naringenin. Uh, naringenin has received a reasonable amount of press attention here, and also uh, I've seen quite a bit of uh, material on PubMed uh, doing trials with naringenin. Um, and this, obviously, is one of, those, one of those things in grapefruit peel, and or, uh, orange juice. And orange juice, exactly. Well, orange juice for sure, but they certainly mentioned that the uh, content within the peel and the membranes of the citrus family, both oranges and lemons, but specifically here uh, in grapefruit. Yep, mar- marmalade is a great there drug. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know if my wife's listening, but I always, always started my day with... <laughs> it was bad then, it was toast, but marmalade. I had every morning I had marmalade for breakfast. Anyway, so... Um, the benefits of naringenin, uh, do you see any other benefits or the way that you would understand naringenin to have a, um, you know, a, a kind of uh, antioxidant stroke, antiviral too? I mean, the, the, the research for naringenin was uh, based on um, herpes virus. So um, they use both naringenin and hesperitin, which comes from uh, orange and lemon peels, and as well as the membranes that join the fruits uh, within the orange or the lemon. Um, acting as antiviral. Do you, knowing what you know about those flavonoids, would you understand that mechanism in any other way? I, no, I, I think it's exactly the same mechanism that aspirin has for its antiviral function, okay. a, a, a pro-oxidative oxidative, uh, cell restorative function. Interesting. All right. <clears throat> so you're, you're still very much uh, on the side of uh, cell energy and the organization that energy brings as being a, a route towards uh, restoring uh, the cell and restoring health. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I, I don't know if we have enough time because it's four minutes to eight, um, but I wanted to break into uh, pomegranate and uh, the extract from the rind. When they had done experiments and trials with this substance mixed with zinc against herpes 1 with acyclovir resistant herpes virus uh, there was a marked increase in antiviral activity with this zinc um, and pomegranate rind extract do you know, would you have anything quickly to say about zinc because uh, I know in the past you've mentioned it topically um, perhaps as being effective um, I suspect that it is uh sort of like a cofactor for vitamin A. Both of them are very important for healthy uh, protein synthesis. Uh, I've experienced, uh, when I was about 50, I had uh, uh, aging eyebrows starting to get stiff, and I found uh, with a a zinc supplement or a vitamin A supplement, either one uh, would reverse the age properties of, of those eyebrows. 
And I think that's because they accelerate normal uh, differentiated protein synthesis and oppose the uh, degraded uh, estrogen excitation uh, reductive process. Interesting. Okay, well, uh, thanks so much for your time. I, uh, next month, I think we'll carry on uh, where we left off with some of the other antiviral uh, medicinal plants and how you'd see their um, effects physiologically and how you would uh, describe those effects as well as uh, further further work on another subject that uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about next month. Thanks okay. so much for your time. Okay, thanks. Okay, so for those people who have listened and haven't called in and for those people who've listened and called in, um, <clears throat> thanks so much for joining. Uh, Dr. Pete's website can be found www.raypeat.com. Uh, he's got a fully uh, referenced ooh, library, if you like, of uh, different uh, diseases and how uh, his research, as well as bringing up research that was done you know, 80 or 100 years ago, which was very valid scientific research, which unfortunately, as time goes by, gets corrupted with the new uh, a new paradigm, unfortunately, um, how that is explained scientifically. They're fully referenced. Uh, and we can always be reached, uh, our business is Western Botanical Medicine, uh, on our website, www.westernbotanicalmedicine.com. I've archived all of our shows. Uh, and before long here, there will be a pretty comprehensive Instagram uh, website also, which will have all of Dr. Pete's quotes and all of his uh, radio show excerpts related to specific subjects i think it'll be a great free uh website information uh, place to actually go and uh, get some current real uh, words from dr pete there'll be audio files as well as excerpts so thanks so much for joining us until third friday of next month good night